It's good to see everyone out this evening. Hope you got a Bible with you. If you would turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 13. Exodus chapter 13. I'm going to be looking at a passage there in just a moment. Uh, Exodus chapter 13. <clears throat> but as usual, like I already said, it's good to see everyone out. Good to be able to worship with you once more. Study God's Word a little bit more. Um, as was already mentioned, we're going to be having a, a men's meeting after this, so make sure that if, uh, you remember that afterwards. Uh, that was postponed from, from last week, so just uh, remember not to miss that. A couple of months ago, I was asked to do a study on uh, for Southside's BBS on the pillar of light. They were going through God's uses of fire throughout the Bible, and one of the things that they talked about was specifically the pillar of light and God's fire as we see it there. And I did a study on that, and what I found was I, I thought some very interesting and very exciting uh, points of application that I think we can make from this. I, I have on the title screen here, Eternal Lessons from a Small Detail. And I really think that that's the case. I think this is a very subtle and small detail. It seems strange because with how small a detail it is, just we go through it in our daily Bible reading and we just see that and we think, oh, that, that's neat. But it turns out to be quite important. In fact, in Psalm 105, the psalm that starts with, make known his deeds among the people. It goes through a list of things that we are supposed to praise God for, that we should be worshipful to, toward Him for. And among that list in verse 39, it says, He spread a cloud for a covering and fire to illumine by night. And so it's hearkening back to that uh, imagery of God so miraculously and powerfully leading His people from Egypt, from slavery and bondage, from a powerful nation into liberation, into freedom. And so, why is this so important? Why is this so praiseworthy? I think you see it just from the outset, but if it was a powerful lesson for Israel to learn, I think that there are some powerful lessons that we are to learn as well. Don't think that this is just important for the Jews alone, because we still have these psalms that we read through, and in fact, we even read, sing some of these psalms even still today. And so don't think that it has nothing to do for us. I think it has a lot to do with us. In fact, God wants us to learn the lesson where they failed to. And so we're going to look at how I think they failed to learn what lesson God was trying to teach them through the pillar of fire. And I want to make sure that we note that and try to make the application that we need to. And so just three things, three lessons that the pillar of fire teaches us throughout the wilderness. And first of all, I think it teaches us about God's guiding light. Over in Exodus chapter 13, Exodus 13 and verse 21, this is the first instance where you actually see the pillar of fire being used by God. In Exodus chapter 13, at the end of the ten plagues, and as Israel is, is, is being led from Egypt by God, what does he use in verse 21? The Lord was going before them in a pillar of cloud by day to lead them on the way and in a pillar of fire by night to give them light that they might travel by day and by night. He did not take away the pillar of cloud by day nor the pillar of fire by night from before the people. And so from the very beginning, how is it being used? It's being used as a beacon in the midst of literal darkness. Now, this is a darkness unlike the kind that most of us are used to today. Because when the sun goes down, nothing really shuts down anymore. <laughs> we can continue working and we can continue doing things. But I will say, uh, one of my first jobs was baling hay. And, you know, the, the man that I worked for, he, he wasn't, you know, this, this big, you know, super rich person that could afford all of the machinery, all of the latest updates in farming, to, uh, you know, machinery. It was just 
very simple uh, machinery that he was using. And so when the sun went down, well, he'd still make us work, but it was a lot harder because we couldn't really see a thing. And we'd have to use small little flashlights to try and light up, you know, this whole wilderness of darkness around us. All we had was the moon and the stars other than that tiny little flashlight. And I'll tell you, it made things exponentially harder. We went 10 times as, I, I, I mean, I, I would say even much more faster than 10 times during the day when the sun was still up than at night. And so, you know, even, I think that there are still some places that we can go where we get a glimpse, a glimpse of how the ancient uh, civilizations used to, you know, go about and work in the midst of that kind of darkness. And in fact, I think it's kind of beautiful when you get to those places where there's no light pollution from the city and you just get to see God's glory uh, when, when the moon and stars do come out. But regardless, it's very hard to see in that unless you have some source of light. For these people, remember who they are. What were they? They were nomads. And in fact, they were somewhat fugitives. They had just escaped the most powerful world nation of that time. And so these were slaves that did not have much, obviously. And these were slaves that had just gone, you know, witnessed all of these ten plagues and had witnessed all of the things that the Egyptians got to see. And after everything is said and done, they go into the wilderness, not, not directly into a hotel, but they're camping all the way along. And as they're being led by God, he, he gives them a light to follow. Without this light, there is no path forward. We have to understand that. Without this light, they are completely blind. And so, what do you think is the takeaway from that? When God gives them a light to follow, what do you think is the takeaway from the notion that without God, there is no light? I think there's a lot of things that we could say. But just for starters, I think when you look at this kind of miracle, we tend to think, well, you know, it, Israel obviously needed a miracle here. They definitely needed a miracle here. How else are they going to get out of this situation? How else are they going to get to Canaan? How else are they going to make their way through the darkness? And I, but I don't think the point is that they needed a miracle. The point, as is always the case with a miracle, is they needed God. That is the main point. Not just that they needed the pillar of fire, but they needed the one that put it there. And they needed the one that makes sure that that fire never goes out during the night and when they're surrounded by darkness. And so where one of the first things that we're supposed to see here, I think, is that not only that we need that light, but without it, we have nothing. And we have no step forward. We need to hold fast to that lesson that God was trying to teach Israel that I think they kept forgetting time and time again that without him there is no salvation and there is no light that we can move forward with. Now, that guidance is critical not just in the moment but all through the way of the wilderness. It, it, it's not just that God gave them the pillar of fire to move until they crossed the Red Sea. This led them all the way to the promised land even through that 40 years that they wandered through the wilderness. Over in Nehemiah chapter 9. Nehemiah chapter 9. Right after Ezra. Nehemiah chapter 9. Another instance where, where there's a praise and a prayer given to God for the things that he's done for the nation of Israel. But in Nehemiah chapter 9, in verse 12, it says, And with a pillar of cloud you led them by day, and with a pillar of fire by night, to light for them the way in which they were to go. Now, you skip down to verse 19, Nehemiah chapter 9 and verse 19. He says, You in your great compassion did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud did not leave them by day to guide them on their way, nor the pillar of fire by night to light for them the way in which they were to go. 
they were quite literally strangers, foreigners in the wilderness. And with that being the case, they needed continual direction. Remember how we started. Without God, there is no direction. Without God, there is no light. Without God, there is no map of which to to move. Over in Psalm 119, I like the way the psalmist puts it here. In Psalm 119, in verse 19, first of all, it says, Open to me the gates of righteousness. I shall enter through them. I shall give thanks to the Lord. Uh, I, I think I have the wrong verse there. Uh, it is Psalm, oh, I was in Psalm, uh, a separate Psalm. Psalm 119, I was in Psalm 118. Psalm 119 in verse 19. I am a stranger in the earth. Do not hide your commandments from me. All throughout this Psalm, it's beautiful language because it's speaking about the blessing we have in God's word. And I love how this particular individual in Psalm 119 says that without that commandment, without this word, we are strangers in the earth. We are just as helpless and hopeless as Israel when they left Egypt and were wandering in the wilderness. Of course, they weren't helpless or hopeless. And why is that? Because they had God. But what would have happened without him? They would have been nothing but lost. They would have been nothing but helpless. And they would have very quickly met their end. Now, is there not a connection to Christians today? What are we on this earth? Is this our final destination? Is this all that there is? No. In fact, we are talked about as strangers on this earth. We have a citizenship, not on earth, but in heaven. In Hebrews chapter 3 and and chapter 4, we looked at this in the Bible class not too long ago. But the, the Hebrew writer there uses that generation that wanders throughout the wilderness. And he uses them as an example, really, not to follow. He says, they had God leading them to Canaan, and they never got to get to that rest. And why was it? Because they rejected it, they disobeyed him, they were unfaithful. Now, he uses that as an example, so that way we can learn from the failure that they represented. They should have had enough faith to enter the promised land. They should have, as strangers on this earth, needing the direction of God to a promised land, they should have completed that task. And they should have followed that light all the way to Canaan, the promised land. But they missed that rest because they looked away. They stopped time and time again, focusing on that light and focusing on God. And every time they do that, that just leads them further and further away. And in fact, because of them looking away from God, they completely miss out on the promised land. And it's the next generation that's going to take it. And so the Hebrew writer uses that generation and uses this people that wandered through the wilderness to say, don't make the same mistake they did. They didn't realize that they needed God every single step of the way. And we need to likewise realize that we need God every step of the way. We cannot miss this point. In a very similar way, we must not act like we don't need his guidance step by step. There's even a hymn that we sometimes sing, step by step you'll lead me and I will follow you all of my days. I think that that is a beautiful thought And I think a lot of us would think of that as lofty intentions. But while we love that thought and imagery and we like how intimate that sounds, I think sometimes we forget how easy it is to not go step by step. I will go a a few steps, but not every single step. In Psalm 119 and verse 105, one of my favorite verses in all the Bible, he says, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Again, another passage that I think would be good to memorize and good to constantly think about. And this is actually a verse that I think many people do quote, and for good reason. But I wonder, and I would like to ask a question. If you've ever quoted this verse, do you just quote this because you think it's cute, 
or because this is how you actually live? Do you quote it because that sounds really nice? Or do you quote it because you have the thoughts and intentions and mindset of Jesus? When he was in the wilderness in Matthew chapter 4 and the devil tempts him and he's constantly referring back to that wilderness language, he's constantly saying, it is written, it is written, it is written. And especially in that first temptation, what does he make clear to the devil? I would rather starve to death than take another step outside of his initiative. Everything I do, it's by his initiative and his alone. Not yours, and not anybody else's. I think that's one of the main things we're supposed to learn from Jesus' example there as he's being tempted by Satan. Is that we, like, if Jesus should not, if Jesus would not move one step without his Father's guidance, how much less equipped are we to do that? And how foolish it is when we think that we can take one step, make one decision, have one thought outside of God's will. Do we treat his word and his will as a light that we will not be able to see without? Because that is the point that God wants his people to understand. Is that without me, listen, we may not be blind. We may be able to see the world in all of its splendor and all of its glory. But we can be very blind to the fact that we are hopeless without him. Just remember, the only reason that we can see the beauty of creation is because God allows it. The only reason that we can breathe this morning and throughout the day is because God allows it. The only reason that I have life right now is because God allows it. But how often do we take it for granted by just taking one step? One step, not just an outright rebellion, but just without thinking Is this a step that is authorized by God? Is this a step that God wants me to take? Is this a step that brings me closer to him? We need to look at at this God's guiding light in the same way that we need it. And we cannot move without it. And so where they failed, we need to learn that lesson. But it also teaches us, the pillar of fire, about the assurance that we should have in God's deliverance or in his promise of deliverance at the very least. Back in Exodus chapter 14, Exodus chapter 14 This is uh, just a little bit after the passage that we just read. But while they're looking at the Red Sea and, and, and they're waiting to cross the Red Sea in verse 19 of Exodus chapter 14, I love this part because this is the moment where God begins to use uh, the pillar of light and the cloud uh, by day. He begins to use these things to actually fight against Egypt. He's using these things to fight against his enemies. And in turn... He's protecting his people. In verse 19 of chapter 14 of Exodus, Exodus chapter 14 and verse 19, it says, The angel of God who had been going before the camp of Israel moved and went behind them, and the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them. So it came between the camp of Egypt and the camp of Israel, and there was the cloud along with the darkness, yet it gave light at night. Thus, the one did not come near the other all night. Isn't that beautiful? Because all throughout this story, Time and time again, you have the Israelites and you have Egypt both acknowledging the fact, oh, there they are. We can see them. And even though they could see them, even though they were right there, God keeps the enemy from getting to his people. He protects them. And there's something that I think we need to take from this. Skipping down to verse 24, it says, At the morning watch, the Lord looked down on the army of the Egyptians through the pillar of fire and cloud and brought the army of the Egyptians into confusion. Notice what's said here. He caused their chariot wheels to swerve, and he made them drive with difficulty. So the Egyptians said, Let us flee from Israel, for the Lord is fighting for them against the Egyptians. (laughs) How glorious would it be to hear a harsh taskmaster like Egypt who had hurt you and your family and your family's family for, 
for a generation and, and for much time. And after all of this time, God not only delivers you, but you even hear them start to cower before Yahweh. Oh, that would be so nice to hear our enemies cower in the same way. Let us flee. Yahweh is fighting for them. And we cannot fight against him. There's no way that we're going to win this battle. In fact, I love this so much because this becomes the very basis of the pagan nation's fear in the world at this time of God. When you get to Joshua chapter 2 and the spies are talking to, to Rahab and they're speaking about, they're speaking about uh, what they're about to do and Rahab is talking to them about why they're so afraid of Israel, she hearkens back to, even 40 years after the fact, but the plagues. And she hearkens back to how he spread the sea and you walked on the ground like dry ground. Not only that, but the victories that they've had, again, as nomads while wandering through the wilderness. And so this very notion is remembered far beyond just this moment when they crossed the Red Sea. But the pagan nations around them begin to fear God specifically because of how he fights for his people using just a pillar of fire and just a pillar of cloud. And isn't that something to, to, to think about? Wouldn't that be something to behold? Now, I will just add, this did not mean that the danger was gone. But I think it's, I, I kind of like the fact that that's the case. Because while the danger was still there, it, that doesn't mean anything about the fact that God is going to have the victory. There can be all kinds of danger on the other side of that cloud in the pillar of fire. It doesn't matter if this is the world's most dangerous force at the time. If God is fighting the battle... He's going to make quick work of them. In fact, the only reason it wasn't quicker was because he was going to make an example out of them. He lets Israel cross, and then when Egypt starts trying to cross over the Red Sea, over the same road of salvation for the Israelites, he closes the sea around them. Isn't that amazing? And shouldn't that just emphasize and, and make us more convicted and assured in passages like Romans chapter 8 and verse 31, where Paul says, if God is for us, who can be against us? Who can contend with God? Who can contend with the Creator? No one. And so when God gives us a promise of deliverance, when he says that I will bring you victory, I will let you share my victory, what kind of confidence should that build in us? And how that should strengthen our faith? And shouldn't we think this way, though Egypt is still chasing behind? Because even when we become a Christian, even when we're a part of God's kingdom, that does not mean the danger subsides, that does not mean that the affliction stops, but it does mean that we have a way out and we have a way through but it's only in God and so we need to see that at least from the very beginning of God's deliverance but often that deliverance is easily overlooked by those saved by it over in Deuteronomy chapter 1 after those 40 years had passed and this uh, new generation is about to enter the promised land Moses gives a second recounting of the law or a recounting of the law rather and as he is doing that he's going through some of their history and he starts talking about the failures of the previous generation and why they could not enter the promised land. And in verse 32 of Deuteronomy chapter 1, it says, But for all this, after speaking about all the amazing things God had done, but for all this, you did not trust the Lord your God, who goes before you on your way to seek out a place for you to, to encamp in fire by night and cloud by day to show you the way in which you should go. They had so many illustrations in real time. They had so many reasons to trust God. But even in light of all of that, they overlooked it. And it's not because God's light does not shine bright. It is because we willfully blind ourselves. And that's exactly what Israel did. And you know how we do that? We just straight up look away from it. 
That's, that's what Israel did, and that's what we do today. We tend to look away from that assuring light. And when we do, that's when we start worrying. People struggle with anxiety and depression and, 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 and different things like that, temptations like that, addiction. And people, when, when in face, facing those things, they things, say things like, I don't know if God can do anything about this. I don't know if God can help me in this. Why do people say that? It's because they have not focused enough on the light that God gives, the light that God shines. And so what do we need to do? We need to refocus. We need to read more. Because I'll tell you something, you cannot read about all of the victories from Egypt and onward. You cannot read of every single story of God bringing victory to his people and how God does it so flawlessly and he does it so easily and with all of that you cannot read all of those stories and think after everything God has accomplished will God be able to deliver me from this is he going to be able to deliver me from this temptation is he going to be able to deliver me from this addiction is he going to be able to deliver me from my depression or anxiety whatever the case may be listen the God who spoke all of this into existence with nothing but a word. I think he can break us of the bad habits. And I think he can break us of the addiction or the sinful thoughts that we may have. And so we need, again, to learn the lesson where Israel did not. We can't overlook this blessing that God has given us. And so, again, just making the application even further. This tends to happen today because we keep looking back to Egypt. It's not just that we look away from God's light, but it's looking back, and I would say somewhat longingly, to what we've left behind. That's exactly what Israel did. In Numbers chapter 11 and verse 4, Numbers 11 and verse 4, this is still that generation that should have known better, and they were on their way to the promised land, and this is before they actually rejected it and received that punishment of 40 years in the wilderness. But in Numbers chapter 4 in verse 11, or, or Numbers 11 in verse 4, excuse me, I, I apologize. Numbers 11 in verse 4. It says, The rabble who were among them had greedy desires, and also the sons of Israel wept again and said, Who will give us meat to eat? Let's just forget that God's been feeding them with bread literally from heaven. Just pass right over that. We remember the fish which we used to eat free in Egypt, the cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and the onions and the garlic, but now our appetite is gone. There is nothing at all to look at except the manna. <laughs> Isn't that hilarious? It's, it's, it's tragic comedy is what it is. Because here, <laughs> they, they literally give the answer in their complaint. They're complaining about how oh, look at what Egypt provided for us. Look at what we had when we were still slaves in Egypt, and we have nothing. Well, I mean, we do have the manna. It's so foolish. It's crazy. And I'm telling you, it's the exact same spirit that we take on and that we embrace when we start overlooking the blessings that God has given us, and we start looking back to what God has delivered us from, the bondage of sin, Egypt, and start looking back longingly. We look at them and we say, how foolish can someone get in saying something like this? But this is what we do when we don't keep that old man of darkness at bay. As Paul talks about in Romans chapter 6, that old man that's supposed to be put away. We do this when we start looking back at the old sins that we used to participate in with nostalgia. We are being like Israel when we look back and we start longing for the alcohol that we used to enjoy as a sinner. We start looking just as foolish as Israel when we begin reminiscing on the party scene that we used to participate in as a sinner. 
We look like Israel and their foolishness when we start thinking nostalgically about the sexual activity that we engaged in as a sinner. We forget that part. Oh, think about all the pleasurable things that we used to do. But we forget the death that it brought. And we forget, really, honestly, the sorrow that it brings in real time as well. We need to be so careful that we don't follow after this pattern of the Israelites. Follow after the pattern of Lot's wife, who instead of looking forward to the salvation that God had given her, she looked back and she was cast alongside that judgment, alongside with the Sodomites and, and, and Gomorrah. And we need to be careful that we don't do the same in looking back. We must completely leave it behind. And that means that we don't let it linger positively in our memory. Over in John chapter 8 and verse 12. John chapter 8 and verse 12. John chapter 8 and verse 12. Look at what Jesus says here. It says, Then Jesus again spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. Now, when Jesus is speaking to people who would follow after him. When he says basically how to be his disciple, does he say he who looks at me once or twice will have the light of life? No, he says he who follows me will have the light of life. And again, that's more than just one step and maybe another. That is every single step. And that is not taking a step and looking backward and just longing for the things that we used to engage in dead in our trespasses. This is completely looking forward, focusing on Jesus and moving every single step in light of his, of his glory and his will for us. And so we need to have the same level of surety that, uh, that Jesus had. We need to have the same level of confidence in the deliverance that God says he's going to give to his people and not follow after the same pattern of the Israelites, overlooking it and neglecting it and taking it for granted time and time again. Well, finally, I just want to end with this notion of his presence because I do think that the pillar of fire is supposed to indicate exactly that for the people of God. In Numbers chapter 9 and verse 15, Numbers chapter 9, again, while they're still wandering, Numbers chapter 9 in verse 15 this is kind of a small detail within the text, but it says, Now on the day that the tabernacle was erected, the cloud covered the tabernacle, the tent of the testimony. And in the evening it was like the appearance of fire over the tabernacle until morning. So it was continuously the cloud would cover it by day and the appearance of fire by night. Now, the reason I go through that is because the pillar of fire, what it did was represent God's presence among his people. God's light is frequently used, and particularly in, in such a visceral way, when it is used in that way, it's, it's supposed to strike fear into those who would start to, you know, leave the path of righteousness. It was supposed to deter, deter wicked living and reinforce pure and holy living. When they saw that pillar of fire and cloud over the tabernacle, they were supposed to remember God dwells in the midst of Israel. And so therefore, I don't want to engage in the deeds of darkness. Bring shame to him. I want to look more like him and how glorious he is and pure and holy he is. Be holy as I am holy, God says to his people. And so it was supposed to remind them time and time again. But like Israel, people can, as we were talking about a moment ago, completely overlook that blessing of God's presence in the lives of his people. We may not have a pillar of fire. We may not have a pillar of cloud like the Israelites did. But we should have a deep fellowship with God. Should we not? Go over to 1 John in chapter 1. 1 John chapter 1. In keeping with this, this uh, light imagery. 1 John chapter 1. Not to mention John talks about God being 
light. But it says in 1 John chapter 1 and verse 6, if we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. And so what does he say, especially in verse 6? First of all, we have, we're supposed to have a fellowship with God. It's the only way that we can have salvation. It's that deep relationship with him. But if we say we have fellowship with him, but walk in the darkness, what have we done? We are nothing but a liar. And so this is the person who acts like they have God, but have borne no fruit in him, have borne no fruit to, re- to show that, that they are a disciple, that they do have this kind of fellowship with God. This is a person who, instead of carrying a cross like a disciple, all they do is carry around this name Christian like a badge. And, in, and just in name alone, they are God's people. But they don't act like it. And they don't look like it. And in fact, that is time and time again what Israel did. Though they had all of these blessings, even though they had light in the midst of darkness, instead of looking that, like that light, they ended up looking like the darkness around them. And is there something to learn there for Christians today? What is surrounding us but darkness? What is surrounding us but the deeds of darkness and everyone that is held captive by Satan? And what we need to be constantly focusing on is making sure that we are not tainted by that darkness. We're not emulating it, what's surrounding us. Rather, we are, it's the verse that we have on our bulletins, that we are a city set on a hill, a beacon in a world filled with darkness. I wonder how many times we, can, we might pick up a bulletin and overlook that verse. Have I been living that way this past week? Am I proactively thinking about how I'm going to live that way more so this next week? At work? At school? No matter what the relationship is, no matter what the association is, am I going to be a light in the midst of darkness or am I going to just emulate the same darkness that everyone else is? Just carry the name Christian instead of really carrying a cross and bearing the fruit of a Christian. We need to be careful that we are living in such a way that shows God is dwelling in our midst. But finally, we already read this verse earlier this morning, but in John chapter 3, John chapter 3, John chapter 3 and verse 16, God's light not only should be powerful in the sense that it is supposed to help us focus in on what the steps were to take, that it's supposed to better us and and help us not look like the darkness surrounding us, but look more like him. I tell you what, when it comes to people doubting whether or not they can break bad habits or break the sin that they are engaged in, here is a passage that I think helps that. He can fundamentally change the playing field. In John chapter 3 and verse 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. This is the judgment, that the light has come into the world, and men love the darkness rather than the light. For their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light, and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light, so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. Now again, we, we briefly discussed this this morning as we were talking about how we, how we should be able to defend baptism. But in looking at how God is light and supposed to be light in our lives, God says that his presence in our day-to-day, that his presence in our lives is supposed to completely change us, that it can, that it is capable of completely changing us. 
which is absolutely needed. But people say from time to time, even if they have been reading the scriptures, maybe they've been having a Bible study, maybe they have been a Christian for some time, and they're trying to fight something in their lives, and, and after some time of doing this, they say, nothing has happened. I'll tell you what, I can guarantee you one thing. I don't, I don't, I, I, I'm not a prophet nor the son of a prophet, but I can promise you this. It's not God's fault. And it's not because his word is not powerful enough. Most likely, it is because we haven't let that light expose everything. How do people do that? Somebody who is used to pornography. And maybe they confess to a brother that they struggle with that. I tell you, you need more than just confession. You need to confess, don't get me wrong, but you need more than that. You need confession and you also need accountability. You need that light to expose your life completely. Not just in some parts that may be easier. Someone has a lying tongue. That person needs to expose more than just one little white lie. You also have to expose, you have to let that light expose a, dece a deceitful heart. We need to allow God's light, to allow this word, his will, to expose every inch of our soul. Because if we don't, that is when the worry starts. That is why there's fa failure. It's not because God's word failed. It's because we have we have not fully accepted it. We have not allowed it to do its full work that it's intended to do. And so I, with all that being said, that's where I want to leave us with. Ha, are you allowing that light to expose the soul? Are you allowing that light to make the changes that it is supposed to have? His presence make the change that it's supposed to have. Perhaps you need help in exposing the deeds of darkness and sin in your life. Maybe you, maybe you need someone to help you in a Bible study or in answering a Bible question. I tell you what ask. At the end of this service, ask someone. And if they don't have an answer or they don't point you to someone, I, that obviously I think that they're going to. But if they don't, ask someone else. And I guarantee you, you're going to find somebody who is thrilled to have that conversation with you. I'll just let you know, I would love to have that conversation with you if that's you. Let's go to this light of life and let it expose the darkness so that way we can have fellowship with God. If you're a Christian and maybe you, in looking at that verse we see on the bulletin every week, instead of living as a beacon or a city set on a hill, maybe you're living more like 1 John, where you're supposed to have fellowship with God, but really you've been practicing the deeds of darkness. Confess, repent, you have an advocate in heaven. Make sure that you leave this building not continuing to walk in darkness, but starting again to walk in light. If you're not a Christian, Follow after the light of life. And that means not just one step or two steps. It means every single step. Are you willing to hear everything that God has for you? And be faithful in his will. And repent of everything that he says to do away with all of the deeds of darkness. Every single one. Make a confession based on that belief and be baptized into Christ's death to be raised in newness of life, in his life. And follow after that resurrected life. If you're subject to the invitation of Christ, please come forward. Let your need be made known as we stand and as we sing.